You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Bree Arthur. You've heard her before, and hopefully you will hear her again. The last time you were on, Bree, you were talking. Uh, we were talking about foodscaping, and I understand that you have a book in the works on that subject. I do. It's it will be available March fifteenth of twenty seventeen. I've been working like a crazy person trying to get it all finished and sent into the publisher. <laughs> now, I saw pictures on your Facebook page that you were out in your garden taking pictures, and your garden is gorgeous. Who would think that you're growing grains in there and rice with all the flowers? Well, you know, that is the whole point of foodscaping, to empower everybody to grow a little something that they can consume in everyday landscape. I just think that the landscapes that surround us that that we don't really even notice all possess so much potential for, you know, really creating a nutritious source of local sustainable food. And that's what the book is all about, empowering people to use the open malt space of, of the land that they already have. I think that's fantastic because I look at the boring subdivisions. I mean, they all have the required, you know, meatball shrubs right around the house foundation, like parsley around a turkey, and then they've got nothing but lawn, maybe the obligatory street tree. But I always, you know, and, and then people have their vegetable gardens in the in the backyard, but in places like mine, you know, the backyard is all shady with trees. Well, that's exactly that's exactly what I'm trying to address. You know, I predominantly work in new subdivisions with younger homeowners, and they have a value that if they're going to invest time and money in a landscape, that they want to be able to eat from it. And often they're in neighborhoods with pretty strict HOA covenants that say no food in the front yard. And what I'm really trying to do is, is get the homeowners and the HOAs to understand that you can grow food in a beautiful way that doesn't offend your neighbors uh, but, you know, utilizes this, this existing landscape, that foundation landscape, and maybe your property borders that give you some privacy from your neighbors. But get away from the idea that the only way to grow food is in these ugly raised boxes where you are tearing out your turf and basically making kind of a a faux mini farm. And when you live in the suburbs, you're not a farmer. So acknowledge that and figure a way to grow your food in a a way that doesn't offend your neighbors. You know, food is seasonal and it's not always beautiful. And growing food is a hobby and a devotion of time. And if you create an infrastructure that's dependent on you being out there managing it every day and you have a life change, suddenly your neighborhood is, is really going to get after you. Whereas if you integrate it in an ornamental palette and you have something change, say you have a, a job that suddenly becomes where you travel all the time or a family member gets sick or you have a baby and you don't have the time to allocate to growing food, 
your landscape doesn't skip a beat because you have this ornamental palette that's already in place and you know you can either grow food or not and it, it, it won't matter that's super and you're not just growing them out in wonderful raised or curved beds out in the front yard but you're growing them along the foundation too that's right. I think the foundation landscape is really my goal of getting people to understand that it can be beautiful and fruitful and organic. I'm finding that the only way to get people to really understand the value of organic land management or sustainable land management is by incorporating food because universally now everyone values organically raised produce more. And I think that it's really important that we get away from some of the toxic chemicals that we spray around our homes on a regular basis. This is the space that we interact in. It's where our families walk through every day, our pets. And so to me, it's, it's an important mission to get that foundation landscape managed as ethically as possible and uh, growing food in your foundation landscape is really the first way to get people to be convinced of that. I was amazed by your garlic harvest this spring, and you had just you had just pulled out peanuts last fall because you grew peanuts there the year before, I think you said, or the season before, and then planted your garlic, and then in the spring it was ready for harvest. And you had a whale of a lot of garlic from, what, is it an eight-inch space in the front of your shrubs, maybe? That's right. You know, the power of the edge. Everybody has an edge in their landscape, and they probably typically have to fight it and deal with, you know, spraying Roundup to keep weeds out of the bed and because you don't have shrubs right up against the edge where your, where your turf meets the landscape. And you just use that edge to grow things like peanuts and peppers and basil and garlic and onions, you know, plants that don't take up a huge amount of space. It's such an empowering use of an 8-inch strip. You know, I miscalculated on the garlic, and I said, well, we, <laughs> eat, we eat garlic every day. So I planted 350 uh, cloves of garlic, not equating that that would turn into 350 <laughs> bulbs of garlic. So that's an important calculation to go ahead and do in advance. Of course, I don't find that anybody is offended by giving them garlic, especially homegrown organic garlic. It's the most delicious thing in the world. And, of course, garlic is really easy to put up. You can, you know, you can seal it in oil. You can roast it and make a paste and freeze it. So you don't, you know, you, you can easily grow 100% of the garlic that you would consume in a year just by using the edge of your foundation landscape. And I think that that's a really empowering tool. When you look at growing food as a whole, it can seem really overwhelming and how could you possibly grow enough to make a difference? But you start looking at specific crops, things like garlic or things like leafy greens, um, potatoes. Uh, for me, tomatoes are, are, are something that I grow 100% of what we use for a year. And then you start looking at how that impacts what you buy at the grocery store. And it's, it, it, it's really an accomplishment. You feel like I know 100% that these are coming from my garden where they've been grown 
totally organically with, with love and care. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really reducing our food miles as a result of this process of using my landscape as a source of health and wellness. And you get such much better food out of it. I mean, the taste, especially with tomatoes, you cannot buy a, a tomato in a grocery store that tastes like what you can grow, even if they call it an heirloom tomato. Absolutely. You know, fundamentally, the heirlooms just don't have the capacity to be transported if they've been vine ripened because they bruise in a skinny minute. And so the only way to get that true authentic flavor, you know, is either to grow it yourself or, you know, get it from a farmer's market and eat it almost instantaneously because even the transport from a farm to the farmer's market, you will have bruising on ripe heirloom tomatoes. You know, they they haven't been bred to be thick-walled and resistant to bruising, whereas some of the modern hybrids, you know, that's, that's a goal. They have to be transported you know, 1,500 miles from the West Coast where they're grown seasonally. And then, you know, certainly in winter, everything is coming from Central and South America. That There's a, a, a lot of opportunities for those, for those fruits to receive damage in transport if they weren't bred uh, to, to be able to withstand that. But you just can't compare it. It's like a tomato at the grocery store is like eating cardboard. I just don't know why anybody would waste their money. <laughs> well, you know, I guess if you're disguising it in a stew, you know, and you're throwing in some canned food, too, with it, you know, some canned tomatoes, that's okay. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> if you do I it just for a little bit a of body. Time. <clears throat> it's probably been now five years since I've purchased any tomato-based products. And so I've, I'm really snooty about it. I have to admit, it's difficult to go out to eat. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I liked when I had a big garden and I could do all the canning um, and, and freezing, and I kept my parents and my husband and myself all in tomatoes, plus giving a lot of it away, um, the joy that you get from looking at all these jars of produce on the shelf just and everybody and the light that shines pantry. through hmm? everybody is jealous of your pantry when you have it lined with authentic homegrown there's just no comparing and it's same thing with your freezer i have a very organized freezer and everybody always comments of how beautiful it is and I think, well yeah because it's not full of packaging <laughs> yeah that, that makes sense though though i used to do a lot of berries and i would just throw them in you know i'd i'd freeze them on a tray and then when they were frozen i'd just throw them in a bag so it was kind of lumpy and at the well, end of the yeah. season, I did that with tomatoes, too, when my husband had brought in yet another five-gallon bucket of tomatoes, and I couldn't face the thought of staying up till midnight and canning and then getting up and going to work the next morning. And so I found that if you just wash the tomatoes and core them and freeze them singly and then toss them in the bag, you know, it's done. That's right. It's ready for chili or, you know, whatever else you want to do. And, you know, with the tomatoes, because I don't have an excessive amount of freezer space, I've I've gotten down into the habit of 
I food process everything just cored. I don't, you know, I don't skin, I don't de-seed anything. And then I remove the juice and I will, I will can the juice when I have time. I can freeze the juice in the meantime and then when I have a big batch, I can can it. And I love to give tomato juice as a winter solstice present to people. But then I roast the paste that's left over after it's been juiced, and I can do that at, a, you know, 400 degrees for 45 minutes. And then from that stage, you can convert it to basically anything that you want. You know, I, with an immersion blender, you can turn it into the base for sauce and, and uh, soup. You can add onions and peppers and, and garlic and cilantro to make salsa. And then I just freeze that in single-serving, you know, um, one-quart bags in the freezer laid out flat, and you can get a huge amount of volume in that way. And that's really how I'm able to provide all the tomato-based needs that we have for an entire year. Uh, with, with the two normal-sized freezers that I have, I don't, I don't have, like, a chest freezer or anything, so these are refrigerator freezers. But I have to be really conscientious. The years where I put in whole tomatoes and whole peppers, it just took up too much space and I couldn't fit everything in. <laughs> it, it does but indeed. <clears throat> this processing and, has saved me a lot of time, and I don't do anything stovetop now. Um, you know, by, by pre-juicing everything, it, just, it, it basically takes this whole process down to an hour. And that's about what I can devote to a big batch of tomatoes in, in any given day. That is amazing. And we, we should note a couple of things. One is that um, besides saving all the space that you, you can, we don't like to, we, we don't, once we have separated out the juice from the tomato pulp, we don't want to try to can that tomato pulp, do we? No, I and I don't. I but you know that's where it always gets frozen. And I find that the one quart bags are the perfect amount for a dinner. You know, a dinner for four. Whereas the the jars can be too much too much sauce for one meal, and um, then then they clutter up my refrigerator. <laughs> so I will tell you that OCD probably is a big driving force. <laughs> in in how and how I allocate my resources, <laughs> and you know, pretty much this this last two years, I've traveled a lot. I'm I'm just too busy for me canning. Uh, though I love it, and it it doesn't take up that much time when you're organized about it. Canning is almost exclusively now for tomato juice and candying peppers. And, um, and that's a good that's a good place to leave this. We have to take a little break right now, but uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about your methods. We'll be right back after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare: Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. 
Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Bree Arthur, and we're talking about foodscaping and some of the things that she's been doing in her garden with creative ways to manage. Well, I guess we're not going to call it an oversupply because except for the garlic, you plant everything. You plant everything pretty much. And right before the break, we were talking about your method, Brie, of you draw off the juice once you have everything all pulverized, and then you can the juice, and you take the pulp, and you slow roast it, and then you pop it into the freezer. And one of the points that I wanted to make is that unless you have a pressure canner, you don't want to try to can that pulp separately. You can do like Brie does and put it in the freezer and can the juice because you can do the juice in a water bath canner, but the density is such that it doesn't get done in a, in a, in a regular canner, in a water bath canner. And that's and, extremely important. Yeah, you don't want to kill yourself out in the garden. And um, likewise, um, I'm not sure the pressure canner is really a good investment for most people. I had a huge garden, and I canned just about everything that came out of it in the way of, of vegetables, and I froze most everything else. But most people these days are not going to have a huge garden. And their husband isn't going to be bringing in five-gallon buckets of tomatoes several times a week or on those days when he would bring in two five-gallon buckets on the same morning, and, and you just cringe. But it is that pressure canners are necessary for certain foods. And you wanted to make the point, too, Bree, about how heavy a pressure canner can be. Yeah, it's an, there's a real physicality behind a pressure canner. And the time that we were talking about heating the water up, it's not that the time that the canned goods are in it is that long, but you have to heat the water and then cool the water. So for every batch, you have, you know, about an hour devoted. And I know that I'm busy, and I know that other people just don't have, you know, that kind of time to be able to devote. And that's where I think freezing becomes such a wonderful option. Um and, you know, again, like you said, space. My mother-in-law has a pressure canner. I, you know, live in a small house. All of our cupboards are already devoted to things that aren't clothes. You know, often we have our spare bedroom closet completely full of potatoes. Because we don't have a, a root cellar here in the suburbs. <laughs> and I just don't have space to store a big apparatus like that. And so, you know, unless I have a day where I can go and hang out with my mother-in-law and catch up and, and pressure can, 
I pretty much am only only water bathing my tomato juice just so that I can, you know, store it and then give it out as gifts in the wintertime. That's my main motivation behind that. And I think, I don't know about you, but I think that canned tomato juice tastes better than frozen raw tomato juice. I I completely agree. There's a depth of flavor that, that you get from tomatoes when they've been cooked. And you're you're cooking that juice when you're canning it, so. <laughs> yep, and that saves the time that you would otherwise spend up on the stove. Um, one of the things, we, you mentioned the physicality of a canner. A pressure canner is a whole lot heavier than a water bath canner, and it's got, by, by necessity, because you're cooking under pressure. And it, that sucker is heavy, and it's not like at the end of the load, like with a water bath canner, you turn off the heat and you lift the lid and it cools down fairly quickly. You take the jars out as it's cooling and get your next batch in. If you have one with the pressure canner, it can take an hour just for the cool down. And you can't hasten the cool down by running cold water over your canner or A, the canner will break or B, the jars will pop inside. And that's not a fun thing to clean up, broken jars in a canner. Yuck. Not at all. Not at all. It feels like such a waste of your energy. It it does. It does. And that's, you know, it's it's like using old jars, you know, that you, old mayonnaise jars for canning, like some people do. I've had too many of those break, and I just, I won't do it anymore. It's a waste of all that time and love that you put into growing, growing it and then, getting it ready for the canner and putting it in the canner and then poof, you know, all lost. So, but now we talked about that and then I wanted to mention something else that I saw in on your Facebook page because you got lots and lots of cool pictures on your Facebook page. And one of the things that I saw, you're growing tomatoes in that spot between your shrubs and um, I guess on the, the front porch and you're growing them in a different way. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I've gone the route of hydroponics, aquaponics, aeroponics, uh, mostly out of necessity. You know, as a person living in the southeast in a development that used to be a tobacco field, of all the problems that we all face in this region, we've got bacterial Ralstonia, also known as southern blight or early wilt in our soil, we have a textbook root knot nematode infestation, and they impact the tomatoes probably the most of any of my crops. So they, they definitely get into pretty much all of the plants I grow. The tomatoes, the heirloom tomatoes that I love so much, are the first to, to go south. And two years ago, I decided that, you know, I simply – was going to have to figure a way around this because I was not going to stop growing tomatoes. And um, we turned to water systems. And we started with just one, you know, one system that was everything came that you needed in a box. It was $75. It looked pretty. It was just like a patio plant. And, you know, the thing with these systems is that you, you need to site them where you have electricity. Now, they are working on getting solar-powered pumps so that you can have systems set out basically anywhere and then you harness the sun's energy. But right now, all of the systems I'm using plug into an electric outlet. 
So that means you have to bring them relatively close to your house. And, you know, if you've had your foundation landscape planted properly, your plants aren't necessarily right up against the foundation, you know, because you want them to be able to grow and develop. And so I had this perfect little strip along my front porch railing in, in between the, the cryptomeria hedge, and then, of course, there's a sidewalk. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, that would be a good place to be able to grow tomatoes. I can tie them up. Um, you can't see the buckets at all because the cryptomerias hide that. And I can't even begin to explain how quickly these plants grow, how healthy they are. Um, they're, they're now up to actually my hanging baskets. In fact, my husband just this morning was out adding another layer of, of string, kind of that, that Florida weave that people do when you grow tomatoes in straight lines. So mm -hmm. we're essentially doing that using, you know, the poles of our front porch to keep the tomatoes upright and sturdy. And it's four plants. They are yielding tremendously. I think they grow about 16 to 18 inches a week. I've been trying to post updates wow. so that people can really see how effective this is, how beautiful the foliage is. There's no disease issues on these plants because they aren't grown in the soil. Because of the orientation of my house, they get shade right at that time, right about 2 o'clock, where it's blasting sun and the tomatoes just instantly wilt. Even though they love full sun, the Carolina heat the last few weeks has really been mm -hmm. incredible with, you know, temperatures in the over 100 degrees with the heat index. And these front foundation tomatoes are the most beautiful plants that, that I've ever seen. And, you know, knowing that they are growing in, in this water system, I have 100% control over the chemistry that they are absorbing. And I can say I really want these to grow a little taller, so I will add a, a higher nitrogen rate. And then when I think, okay, I want them to start setting a lot of flowers and setting a lot of fruit, you know, I can manipulate the chemistries based off of the nutrient solutions that I have and totally control how they grow and how they fruit. Now, how do they taste compared to tomatoes grown in the ground? I will tell you, because people often refer to this, I, in, in blind taste tests here that, that we have held at our house, Everybody chooses the hydroponic tomatoes over the in-ground tomatoes. And, you know, I was not a believer of that. I didn't come to hydroponics with the idea that their fruit would taste better. It was literally just a utility to get over the issues that I've inherited as a southeastern grower. But when grown well, and you can grow hydroponic tomatoes using organic nutrient solutions, I, I literally, I don't actually taste a difference at all. I think when they win the taste test, it's because they are a little bit juicier. They have a slightly higher water content. Interesting. Now, I would have thought that the difference... they're never stressed. They're never, yeah. ever stressed. <laughs> well, I would have thought that 
Yes, a hydroponically grown tomato would taste better than one grown in the ground that has been very stressed, like not being able to take up nutrients because it's got the root knot nematodes. Um, but I wouldn't have thought that the water content would um, make them more flavorful because I always find, well, of course, I like my tomato flavors concentrated and on the sharp side. Um, tangy, maybe, is a better word than sharp. Now, do you like, do, do most of your people that are taste testing, do they like the more bland tomatoes, or do they like stronger flavored ones? Well, I would never call these bland. and I, I think a lot of that goes to varietal selection. And so, you know, I, over the last 10 years, have, have really figured out what heirloom varieties have the, the flavors that I like the most. And compared to an in-ground tomato or, a, or a, a water system tomato, I can't notice a difference between the two at all. Um, I think the difference with the, with the water-grown tomatoes is that they have a better ability to absorb minerals and micronutrients. And that almost enhances the flavor more than what some of the in-ground tomatoes are able to absorb because of, you know, climate stress. Well, yes, yeah, certainly mineral uptake makes a, makes a huge difference because, it, you know, and it's, it's like when I'm growing in containers in a soilless mix, even if I'm using an organic fertilizer, it's not the same as growing them in the ground. It Absolutely just, not. Because there are more minerals, even though our soil had been overworked for years and years, like most southern soils had been, um, it just there is there are still enough nutrients left, and of course our clay soil holds a lot of nutrients. Um, so okay, you got me on that one. <laughs> I can't believe that it's about time to come back to take another little break. But when they come back, I want to find out more about what you're doing. And you know, you mentioned um, changing the growth rate and everything by changing the nutrients. And I think a lot of our people, our listeners, might think it's a chemistry experiment. But we'll be right back after this. Quick stakes. That's. Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org 
or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and my guest today is Bree Arthur, and we are talking about hydroponically growing tomatoes versus um, growing them in the ground. And now you mentioned, Bree, changing the growth rates by manipulating the um, elements that you're feeding it, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, whatever. But people don't have to have a chemistry degree to do this, do they? They do not. Oh, my goodness. The, your local hydroponic shop will make this all so easy, and there are an incredible amount of resources online to be able to, to find what you're really looking for. I've been having trouble keeping the pH balance because all of my systems are outside, in the garden, not in a controlled environment. And I went into my, my hydroponic shop, which is 50s and Gardening, it's an amazing store that I really feel is the future of, of people getting access to the products and services that they need with regard to gardening. And I explained what was happening, and they instantly knew, you need fulvic acid. And, you know, for $6, I solved this problem, and the tomatoes have instantly reacted in a positive way, my pH is staying balanced, regardless of the rain that we get or you know, drying out or extreme temperatures. And, and so I highly recommend that if you, get into, if you get interested in alternative growing systems, that you find a local resource that you can go to and, and ask your questions, and you will learn so much from them. I'm finding that it's just the most amazing community. When I go into fifth season, I literally see people of all ages, of all ethnicities, and they're empowered in that they're growing plants in a way that accommodates their life. And I, I think that we are at a time where not everyone has the time and luxury to develop a landscape, and my only goal in this world is to get people to grow plants no matter how. And I'm seeing these water systems as a great opportunity to empower people. And I'm just so grateful that this season is here to help me learn. Because um, despite being a professional grower of trees and shrubs, I didn't know the first thing about how to grow tomatoes in buckets of water out in my garden. <laughs> and, you know, and it can be as simple as people want it to be. I remember my first foray into growing hydroponically was after a Master Gardener conference down in Florida about 25 years ago, and he was demonstrating growing um, lettuce primarily and herbs, but also bigger plants in a child's wading pool with covered with a sheet of styrofoam into which holes were cut for the plant roots to go down into the nutrient solution. And it was as simple as you get a box of the blue stuff and you mix it according to label directions, depending on how big your your pool is, what the capacity is, and and grow. But I did have a problem with excessive rain because that was one of our rainy years, and I kind of gave that up after a couple of tries because we were getting so much rain, as you can imagine, a child's wading pool. Um, and my second was into something totally different. It was an arrow garden, and you may have seen these. They were developed for people to grow 
basically in in their kitchen. And mine came with a set of herbs, and it comes with fluorescent lights. I guess now they're LED lights. And you have little tablets of organic plant food that you drop into a basin of water, and you push the button, and the pump turns on. And you are right about the growth rate in something like that. I was cutting herbs and giving them away and cutting more herbs, and and this was after I froze enough and dried enough to keep me and several relatives happy for a long, long time. And it's just as easy Well, I'm so impressed with these systems. The Tower Garden, to me, could, could literally change the way people access food. If everyone had a tower garden on their back porch or their front porch or basically anywhere in three square feet, they can grow, you know, up to 24 different things. And, and they grow so well and you don't get dirty. I mean, I'm fascinated with how many people don't want to actively garden because they don't like to get their hands dirty. And for you and I, that's maybe one of the motivators. <laughs> but it's not a motivator for everyone, and it's important that instead of forcing our values on everyone else, we just figure a way around it so that they aren't isolated from, from growing plants. You know, and there are these amazing options for how we can get them hooked just like we are. <laughs> <laughs> You have inspired me to go out and, and look for a tower garden. How many cucumbers did you say you got off of your we tower garden? more than 40. More than 40. I've never been able to have a good cucumber crop since I've moved to this house because the nematodes always do them in. And I love to make dill pickles. I mean, I would eat dill pickles literally every day, 365 days of the year. And you know what's what's cool, what I'm finding with, with these alternative systems is that my husband, who appreciates gardening but isn't the gardener in our house, is really into these systems. You know, he likes pumps. He works for Duke Energy. He loves electricity. And so it's <laughs> tapping into a whole new way that growing plants with this demographic of a you know, mid-30s male who would not generally be shopping at a garden center is suddenly really inspired to be involved. And I think that that's a powerful tool for everybody to recognize that, you know, these alternative systems offer something. They offer, first of all, a solution for a challenge that many of us face. And then they offer this you know, added value maybe for people that are really into chemistry and they want to see chemistry happen right in front of them. Or they're really into mechanics and pumps and electricity. And this is a way that engages them through horticulture that also fulfills that need. Um, You know, and then, you know, we've also gone the route of aquaponics, which is different from aeroponics and hydroponics in that, you're using the biology that fish create as your sole nutrition source. And so this really adds on this element of, first of all, learning how to, to, to grow and cultivate fish and then understanding how to feed them in a way that is going to make their biomass as efficient for the crops that you're growing inside that water system. And, it, you know, again, it's these layers of interest that I think engage a broader demographic than maybe just landscape horticulture does. 
Well, yes, certainly. Um, to get some guys like to garden, and some guys just don't. My husband is still, you know, to the state. He's he's perfectly willing to dig a hole or. In now in this year, this season, he's hauling hoses for me because we're so incredibly dry. Um, but but yeah, he likes tinkering around with stuff, and you know, and he's got his he he likes to play with his toy trains and things like that and rebuild them. And so yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that as opening up another window for the men in your life. Um, now you we mentioned... all have to be creative in how we how we get people hooked on horticulture, and <laughs> you know more than anything, my goal as a, a professional in this industry is to just inspire awe. You know, I feel every day I look outside and I see plants, and I just think it's so amazing that these plants grow, and that my life couldn't exist simply from a biological standpoint without plants. None of us. Humanity is so dependent on horticulture, we don't even recognize it. And I just want everybody to realize at least some percentage of the significance of that and engage them in a meaningful way. Now, you talking about aquaculture, um, how do you manage your fish when it's 100 degrees outside? Well, so this is really important. When you're, when you're placing these aquaponic systems, especially I'm doing it all within my landscape, it's, they're in places where they're going to get afternoon shade. So I have one that's literally three steps off of my front porch. And it's in an area where a lot of people might have, say, a koi pond. And they don't grow plants in it. They just have the, they just have the koi. Well, this is, you know, a perfect place. You have access to electricity, and, of course, it's in a spot that as the sun goes around my house, by 2 o'clock, it's, it's pretty much in full shade, and that makes it so the water doesn't heat up excessively. And um, in my backyard, I have just the opposite conditions. I have an aquaponics tank right off of my back patio, so, again, I have easy access to electricity because you do need to have air pumps, you know, constantly circulating air so that the fish are in, in a situation where it's not like a swamp. They need the aeration of the water to be able to live, just like, a, just, just like an indoor fish, fish tank. Um, but it gets full shade until about 3 o'clock, and then I have sweet potatoes growing over the ground, so the water really never gets penetrated with the full sun, but the plants get the sun they need to be able to grow up. And, you know, I currently have tomatoes growing in that backyard aquaponic system that, that are now 10 foot tall and covered in fruit. Oh, and it's wow. 100% from the biology that the Gambese fish are creating. And to me, I just think that that touches on, on so many different things that just create awe and wonder and, and connect science and chemistry to your plate. That I, I think everybody could use a, a little bit more awareness of the, the magic of, of Mother Earth and, and how things grow. And, you know, watching this happen with the fish has, has really been an incredible value-add moment for me. 
I was fascinated when I was down at Disney World, you know, in Epcot years and years ago by their aquaponic system. And they were going tilapia in it. And, of course, I haven't ever been able to eat a tilapia since then because they were so cute. Um, <laughs> but, but it was fascinating. And well, now, I'll tell you, we went with smaller fish that we wouldn't eat simply because we knew we would develop relationships with those fish. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> and we wouldn't eat them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing how attached you can get with silly fish, isn't it? Well, it is. But, you know, knowing that they're providing the nutrition that are making these tomatoes grow, I think that's, that's a relationship worth having. And I, I did learn an important lesson that I, I want to share. I originally was wanting to grow the fish in feed tanks, you know, that, that farm mm-hmm. animals drink out of. And I thought, well, this is a great solution. They're, that's easy to find. They're relatively inexpensive. They look good in a garden. Uh, you know, it's galvanized. And the problem with those is that they're zinc-lined, and they're, uh-huh. you instantly get a zinc toxicity. And not only do the fish have a sensitivity to that, but the plants do as well. And the zinc makes it where the plants then can't absorb magnesium and manganese. And... Um, and it opens up a much, whole other can of worms that we have to cover in the next section. We'll yeah. be right back after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Bree Arthur, and we're talking about different ways to grow things. And earlier in the show, of course, we talked about foodscaping, and as part of her foodscape, um, which is just a matter of, of course, growing some food in a normal kind of landscape. You're also doing some other fun things, um, trying to learn what else might be done. And you're, we were right before the break. We were talking about um, growing fish, going, growing fish and plants, you, with the plants taking up the nutrients from the fish waste. And the problem that you had with a zinc kind of horse trough, cattle trough. And Bree, you know, I can understand where you're coming from because my first garden, water garden, was in a zinc wash tub. But I never thought, now how low did you say the pH went in there? 2.5. 
<laughs> wow, Zoe, if I got in a reading like that, um, a pH reading like that, I think I would have, I would have taken the test strips back for another batch. Wow, that's that's just amazing. But yeah, well, it and, does. you know, it was an important lesson to learn that you know you could use those troughs and line them maybe with rubber rubber pond liner, or you uh-huh. could put buckets. And, and, and use the trough as your disguise for the bucket. But in and of itself, those are not a solution for containing plants and certainly fish. What I ended up doing was putting, turning those troughs back into fountains. So they have a water pump and it makes a pleasant sound and moving the fish and the plants into in-ground pond liners. So that actually helps solve the heat issue because they're insulated by the, by the ground, by the soil, and the plastic remains neutral, and I can, I can balance that water system far more effectively, and the fish are very, very happy. <laughs> now, are, are you going to be doing a book about this, too? Because I bet you our listeners have a whole lot of questions. You know, this could be a whole book in and of itself. I do have a chapter in the, the Foodscape Revolution devoted to alternative growing systems because I do truly feel like th- this is the future and, you know, a great way to utilize the, the common space in your foundation landscape to, to be kind of a neat experiment that engages people in a different way. But I, I think there are some great resources already existing which I rely on, that, that go through this, because I'm certainly not reinventing the wheel. I am, I am using the experiences of other people to be able to apply this in a way that I hope the landscape industry could, could eventually help facilitate. Well, I certainly hope that they do. Um, so you had a big learning curve on, the, on this, too. I think um, a lot of people think that just because we can garden and we're very good at gardening in one way, that we can garden in other ways. And while we maybe catch on a little bit or recognize problems coming up sooner than, than a non-gardener would, um, it's there's still a learning curve for every different thing we do, isn't there? There really is. And I think, you know, what, what's so amazing about being a gardener is that we have this incredible community of people to be able to ask questions to and, and gain knowledge from. And we're, we're a very kind community. And I, I'm always so encouraged when I post something on Facebook and, I, I get 20 replies of of solutions for my problem, and uh, you know that that's certainly been the case in my my experience with these alternative growing systems. That the people that are experts in this aren't necessarily experts in in ground growing techniques, and that makes them extremely valuable resources for understanding how to use these systems effectively. Amen to that. I've- I can't tell you when I first started keeping fish how much I relied on the CompuServe Fish Forum 
for information. And, and of course, back then there wasn't much else other than you know CompuServe out there. It was kind of pre AOL, but these people really, really knew their stuff, and they were as happy to share their information as gardeners are to share plants and information one to another. We're so fortunate. This Everything about growing plants is, is positive for people and the environment and the community it creates, and I would just like to keep seeing that expand. And that's where I really think that these systems help, help uh expand the demographic of people we that we touch because as as I've mentioned before not everybody has the luxury of living in a house with a lot of space and so they might only have a, a patio or a balcony and I think these systems are far more effective than growing in containers with soilless media well perhaps but isn't it cost prohibitive to get started sometimes well, not not really. I mean, when you look at buying a container and buying the soil and buying the plants, your your cost is, is going to be nearly the same, and the difference with these alternative systems is that you're reusing those same those same inputs over and over again. So you're not necessarily getting rid of the soil every season because what you're using is maybe hydrocorn. And that can be reused uh, crop after crop. You got a point there because I do go through a whale of a lot of pro mix. And oh, I would say <laughs> soil and mulch are my biggest expenses as a gardener, and these these hydroponic, aquaponic, aeroponic systems are really a one-time investment that you use over and over again. Now, you mentioned that the tower garden came complete as a kit. And so I assume you just put it together and and filled it up and you were ready to go? And voila, and it's like magic. It came with the nutrient solutions you need, a pH balancer, a pH kit so that you can test the soil, an incredible DVD that explains every part of how to put it together and how to seed it. actually even came with the seed so that you could start the plants. It was 100% complete. And I'm, I'm just in complete awe of how efficient the tower garden is, even compared to some of the submersion bucket systems of hydroponics. You know, the difference with aeroponics is that it, it's a timer that comes on for 15 minutes and then goes off for 15 minutes. And in that time when the water isn't actively running, air touches the roots, and causes the roots to stop growing exponentially. And so you end up with less root mass, and that altogether makes the system work more effectively. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, because I know when I cleaned out my arrow garden at the end of the season, and that's one of those things like that, too. The water's on for a while, and then it's off. Um, it, it, it did have quite a quite a large root mass, but the humidity was remained very high in there. It's a small system, I guess. It was maybe one foot across and maybe eight inches deep or so. So maybe that made the difference. Yeah, but, the, this this basic tower garden is um, three foot wide at the base. It holds twenty five gallons of water, and then it can rise between three and five feet, depending on how many sections you add. So it's a significantly larger system than the arrow garden, 
And really, right now, it's, it's, this system is being used for commercial lettuce production, trying to get lettuce out of the wasteful California desert where they're having to flood these fields. And, of course, where animals are running through and we're getting, you know, listeria and E. coli infestations and into these tower garden systems, which are very, very water efficient. Well, I've seen that there, there's a whole new growing revolution, and, and I'm sure that some of you have read about it, too, uh, that of growing hydroponically, uh, particularly the lettuces, the microgreens, the, some of the herbs, and they're grown in big ranges that may cover acres, but with very, very little water. And I think that's pretty cool. And it also gets your food close to home. There's a big range in, uh, I think it's Brooklyn, that is feeding, you know, a whole lot of Manhattan as well as Brooklyn just with fresh greens, and it doesn't have to get shipped across country. Would you have any recommendations for the books that you're, you're liking, um, or would you like to email them to me, and I will get them up on our Facebook page pretty soon? Maybe yeah, next I, will, week. I will email them to you, and then you can get them so people can click right to the link and maybe order them directly. There are the, amazing <coughs> range of, of information, even if you just type in, hydroponic systems into Google, you'll find an incredible amount of information. And for those of us who maybe don't always have time to sit down with a book, there are some great YouTube videos that will teach you step-by-step exactly how to to get this process started. That's great. That's that's wonderful. And I'm so glad that, that you can walk into a a hydroponic shop now and not have police standing there and staring and taking your phone number, your, your license number, uh, like it used to be here. Um, it's so, the truth. You know, we owe so much of this technology to the cannabis industry, and I'm just so grateful that, you know, we're, we're really starting to break the stereotype of, why these these systems work and and they're a resource for nutrition everyday nutrition that is wonderful and i have to say that even though my arrow garden was not cheap it was great in a number of ways one of which is um besides supplying lots and lots of herbs it's a great nightlight in a dark kitchen uh, it worked, worked wonderfully well for me. Un- unfortunately, the cats like them. Well, Bree, we're about out of time, and I can't believe it, but, but tell people where they can find you on your website or your Facebook page or both. Yes, com is my website, and uh, you can find me on Facebook as Brian Glovna Arthur. And you can actually watch this whole process of the alternative growing system this season on growing a greener world. So we have filmed the whole process so that we can really show people how you can use your foundation landscape in an alternative way. That is wonderful, and I will make sure that we get the schedule for that because I know you and our tomato man, Craig LaHuyer, we have both done shows with Joe Lample for Growing a Greener World this year. And I am we just have. looking it's forward to seeing It's the same episode, and we are finishing that episode with our annual fundraiser, the tomato tasting, on August 13th. So you'll get to 
see how Craig and I and Joe all grow the tomatoes in different ways and then how we celebrate tomatoes with this great fundraiser. That is wonderful. Well, that's about all the time we have for this week, Bree. I I thank you so much for being with us, and I hope that you will come back because we just talk and talk, and the time flies by. Well, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and that's all we have time for today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.